when doctors in the front line notice that a large section of the population of patients do not get better even when they have everything dialed in with nutrition and lifestyle and make the connection that the common denominator is trauma there is hope for all the world in today's episode we answer three key questions what is trauma informed care and why is it the key to global wellness what is big trauma and what is little trauma and have you experienced them what are the practices that you need to move past big t and little t dr deepak ravindran has over 20 years of experience in helping people overcome their pain in the nhs and private practice He is one of the few consultants in the UK who possesses triple certification in lifestyle medicine, musculoskeletal medicine and pain medicine. He has been a consultant in pain medicine since 2010 in one of the biggest district general medical hospitals in the UK. He is currently clinical lead for the specialist pain services for all of the West Berkshire since 2015. He is the author of The Pain-Free Mindset. Let's get started. Hey everyone, I am Deepa, Allied Functional Medicine Practitioner, author and you. Gini and you're listening to the Sleep Whisperer podcast, the only sleep podcast with conversations and meditations. I'm on a mission to share profoundly insightful sleep conversations with global visionaries that merge together functional medicine and ancient wisdom. Breathe in bliss through weekly guided meditations and let yourself enter the land of dreams. Together, let's unravel the pieces, get to the roots and understand the right tools to transform your sleep completely. Through this podcast, I want you to dream the best version of yourself. It's time to regain hope and begin your sleep journey. Dr. Deepak Ravindran, welcome back to the Sleep Whisperer podcast and your previous episode we spoke about pain and sleep. Today we are talking about trauma-informed care. Um, trauma is something that is very personal to me. I'm quite, I feel that there's a lot more attention that we need to bring to it. Uh, could you just get us started by talking about what is trauma-informed care and why are you so... Uh, focused in that direction how has it played how do you feel it plays a role in all health so thank you first of all Deepa for again having me back on the sleepers for a podcast it's great to talk to you and to your listeners again about another topic which is much closer to my heart than even uh, pain management uh, to a certain extent, because I feel that as healthcare professionals, we all should be aware not only of this new scientific evidence that is really shaking the roots of healthcare as we traditionally practiced it, but not it's not only about becoming aware of this phenomenon and the science behind it, it is also to then say, well, 
how should we be changing our practice to serve our patients better? Because we are realizing now that this has implications for how we do healthcare itself. So this is trauma-informed care is not just about how one individual looks after his patients or her patients, but it is about how systems, about how healthcare systems itself must evolve in order to support their patients better so that their journey through the healthcare uh, provision is as smooth and not trauma-inducing. So let's sort of cycle back a little bit. To me, it represents the ultimate form of upstream movement. You know, there is this uh, very nice analogy I often give in my talks, like when I'm in a pain clinic, I feel like I'm standing at the bottom of a waterfall where there are huge amounts of these human bodies, people are falling over the waterfall. And then if I'm in the pain clinic, I feel like I do not know how and who I can rescue because I can pull some people out of the river after they've fallen, but many are very difficult to change and they have sustained such trauma in the fall that it is very difficult to do anything about it. So one option of going upstream is actually in a trauma-informed process is to say, can we prevent them from falling over the waterfall? So can you set up systems in place to prevent that from happening? And that's where I think a lot of general practitioners, GPs or primary care providers are able to help and they try their best. But still, it is not enough. The real question and the true upstream question we should be asking is, what is it that is actually throwing them in the river in the first place? Can we do something to prevent them from falling in the river in the first place? Because after that, the current sometimes just takes them along in such a speed that we can't do much about it. So trauma-informed care comes from understanding that when people and their nervous and immune systems are exposed to the external environment, there are a variety of traumas that are occurring what we call big trauma and small trauma, so big T and small T. Each of these collectively have an impact on the nervous and immune system as they grow right from childhood through adulthood till they die. And in realizing that these situations have an impact constantly and are changing the nervous and immune systems, trauma-informed care essentially says we need to realize that impact that is happening when these effects happen on the system. We need to recognize the signs and symptoms of such changes when people present to us in any healthcare setting. We need to then find a way to uh, respond to it appropriately by integrating our practices and aligning the way we talk and what we do and what we say. So you respond appropriately. The ultimate aim of realizing it, recognizing it, responding to it, is we want to prevent re-traumatization. We don't want to, in a healthcare setting, add to already what they have experienced that has got them into healthcare setting in the first instance. So that preventing re-traumatization together forms the four R's of trauma-informed care, in my view. There is a very clear connection to pain, which I can continue to explore there, but that in, in principle and in uh, summary is what 
trauma informed care means to me deepak and i think i before we go deeper i wanted to just talk a little bit more about the big trauma and the little trauma because when you mentioned that i just started to think about this and um i mean i've had probably a big trauma but it you know a lot of times we don't even realize we've had that and it shows up as ripple effects in our physiological health or in our emotional health and we it's only now that decades later i'm able to piece together certain patterns which have caused me to behave a certain way or predispose me towards certain challenges my ability to jump up in sleep at times even when everything is still normal because of this big trauma i still have that tendency where if i get an alert um, email which is a little bit challenging to respond post 5 pm that sets off an emergency cascade almost and i find i wake up with a racing heart so would you be able to define for us what do you mean by this big trauma and little trauma Uh, gladly i'm um, first of all thank you for sharing that deepa i'm sorry about how that impact is but in a way you are proving our change our understanding that you know even after realizing it sometimes we know that we can't avoid it because of how certain stimuli can trigger the thing there so to rewind back there is this very popular story that is often told and that is how it became a scientific study so there was this gp uh, back in the us in san diego in middle class sort of california he was a general practitioner so a gp who had about 15 or 17000 people in his practice so like you know in the us they have this thing of primary care practices and they have this and so he was trying to do a weight loss management so he was working for one of the big uh, health systems there called kaiser permanente and he was trying to do a weight loss management program for his patients and every time he would do a weight loss management he'd bring all these people in they do 2 3 months of weight loss and then they would lose the weight that is required but then 6 or 7 months later they'll put it back on again and he was getting confused and really worried on what can he do that actually makes sustainable behavior change because he's giving all the right techniques he's giving the support they are doing intensive program yet they are not able to sustain the weight loss and keep to it so he was trying to say okay what do i need to know about these people and so he kept sort of going back into their back history and sort of getting a full comprehensive holistic picture of the patients and what he realized was that 80% of the people in his weight loss management program had been sexually abused before the age of 18 when they were young and so in a way gaining weight and being overweight was in some way a protective factor for their brain and the nervous system in terms of trying to protect itself that realization made him say well do you is there a correlation so what he did was he got together with a so the name of the gp was dr feletti and he got together with a researcher from the cdc and they did this big study called adverse childhood experiences study ace study in the middle of the 90s so it is late 80s early 90s they went and asked all the 17000 people in his gp practice 
and they asked 10 questions. They asked those 10 questions, which essentially became the big T's, the big traumas there. So they asked them about abuse, neglect, and family dysfunction. So abuse meaning physical, emotional, or sexual abuse, neglect meaning physical or emotional neglect, and family dysfunction can be a set of sort of uh, five questions, which would be ranging around whether your mother had any mental health problem, whether you had witnessed your parents getting physically abused or your mother getting physically abused by the partner, whether they had any sort of drug-related issues, whether they had been sent to jail. So these were about 10 questions that were asked, and this together formed the ACES questionnaire. And that questionnaire was, and the study was published in 1996. And it was remarkably shocking because it showed that almost 50% of the population in that middle class, upper middle class white population had one adverse childhood experience before the age of 18. And they overall were able to show that when people had four or such experiences before the age of 18 and did not have a protective supportive factor in place, then it meant that the nervous and immune system was getting so chronically stressed because of that excessive uh, big trauma that it spilled over into the 20s or 30s, by which time they started to get physical health conditions. So their rates of obesity were much higher. Asthma was much higher. Cancer was higher. Heart disease was higher. Mental health, obviously, higher. I mean, intuitively, you think mental health must be the one that's affected. But actually, what the study showed was shocking in that liver disease conditions, respiratory disease conditions, cardiovascular disease conditions, things like cancer, autoimmune diseases, Pain, chronic pain is three times more common in people who have had adversity before the age of 18 than people who have not had it. So that study now is not just been replicated in California, but in various parts of the US, in various parts of Europe, even in India, in many parts of the UK and Africa as well. So it is remarkably consistent in that up to 25% of the population are likely to have experienced three to four adverse experiences or big T's before the age of 18. The small T's, in a way, we, we now say the big T's are still. So there are a few more big T's that have been added. So people who experience a major road traffic accident or people who have had a shock or a bereavement or a divorce that has been very traumatic, that can still be constituting a big T. But the small t are a variety of these chronic stressors, you know, not having enough financial ability, bullying at workplace, isolation, neglect in the workplace or in the family thing, not having a family unit that recognizes or validates you, having a chronic health condition that is chronically stressful with no support systems in place or social connection in place. These are all the small t's that can collectively add up and put a chronic stress on the nervous and immune system such that over time, for lack of a better word, there is almost a wear and tear process of the system that is not able to cope with this chronic release of cortisol and stress chemicals into the bloodstream again and again. And it starts to uh, start to get bare in certain areas. So 
in some people it might be the heart some people it might be their lungs some people it might be their autoimmune system in other people it might be their brain so alzheimers or dementia all of these have now shown to be related to this complicated overlap between big t small t the social connection in between and their own physical health and support systems I think Deepak that I've had so many of the ones that you mentioned that I'm wondering how I'm smiling today but I just want to ask you this because as I said that I've done so much of work on uh, trying to heal physiologically emotionally uh, but as I said if there are still certain times where I don't put certain practices in place on a daily basis I can get quickly spiraled back in when there's a trigger. Uh, so I just want to ask you this, and I'm so glad that you are out there doing this work. I think the world really needs attention on this. Um, how are you How are you trying to integrate this into healthcare, um, you personally? And also, what are some of the practical aspects that you are suggesting to patients to... Uh, who have been, I mean, if there's such a large percentage of people who have faced the big trauma and the little trauma, what are the practices that we should be putting in place consistently to be able to move past it? Absolutely. That's such an important question. And that, I think, is, is the right question to ask because it's about implementation. What do we do now, now that we know this information? So there are two parts to this, Deepa. One is, of course, is to become aware of this. So I think awareness is the first step. Self-awareness or awareness of this and its impact is important for us as a society. This gives another clear indication in my mind that trying to separate the mind and the body and trying to deal with it separately is a flawed ideology right from the outset. Okay, we may have Systems now that are unnecessarily putting mental health and physical health separately, but we now realize actually that we have an opportunity to review how our health systems are funded, incentivized and supported because we need to now understand that somebody who's got a trauma and if you don't have the right kind of support systems in place, and you just go about treating their autoimmune condition, throwing drug after drug, treatment after treatment, expensive surgery after surgery, but you don't look at the wraparound aspect, the social systems in place, and you don't think about what is happening to calm this nervous and immune system down, then you are not going to be doing things in a sustainable manner. So... That to me is the first core of actually why that awareness is important, not only at an individual level, but at a system level. The second aspect is let's focus on the individual aspect of trauma-informed care. Now, I don't want anyone to feel that having listened to this, that they realize that, oh my God, they have got all these combinations of big T's and small T's, and they feel that it's beyond hope. What has also come out from the literature is that if they are in a situation where they become aware and they realize that at least now they have got a support system in place, you know, a supportive husband or a children or a supportive parent, some or a supportive set of friends or a job that feels fulfilling, then that means it's still possible to calm the nervous system down and bring back a level of safety. 
we cannot know at this point of time whether the changes that have been implemented will still play out but we can definitely slow it down slow the progress down and maybe the hope is we can reverse it because we know the nervous system is ultimately plastic you can overwrite and create some new circuits with the practices you bring in right now that might be at an individual level it might be about various practices like we spoke about you know can be a various combination of mindfulness relaxation techniques good sleep good nutrition good physical activity connection and social community all of those could potentially change and bring new nerve circuits that can overwrite the existing underlying big t impact or at least try to make the new circuits the preferred way of the signals to travel but you are very clearly illustrating in a point there is that when that stress element comes through there is a possibility that the brain may still choose a more primitive stress not primitive it doesn't feel the right word but might choose what it has found to be the safety circuit at that point of time because it has worked for it 10 15 years ago when the stress level increases beyond a certain point it might make the decision to go via the old circuit again and not the new circuit so that is a challenge that we still haven't figured out and that is where i think the principle and policy of actually the healthcare system and that is where the second part you know so when we move from the individual level and we realize the individual only can do so much you know there is this principle in lifestyle medicine i'm just slightly digressing but i'll come back to what i mean in lifestyle medicine if we say oh lifestyle has to be changed we should not think that it is only about the person making the lifestyle because within a very short time we'll realize that there are certain things in the environment that are also contributing to that person adopting that so called unhealthy lifestyle if you make food that is uh, cheap dirty ultra processed food available at every roadside for a fraction of the price and the healthy food is located one mile away where they have to walk for a longer time or you don't create a park in a place where they can do safety related physical activity in a healthy proper manner and you keep roads and busy noise and traffic and pollution then that means that you can't talk about healthy lifestyle to someone who is not living in an ecosystem that supports that lifestyle so the trauma informed care actually brings that whole part there is if a person is having that feeling of a big trauma and is doing a variety of activities to support themselves but when they experience pain or when they are going for some treatment for their autoimmune condition then the healthcare system that goes in must not retraumatize them must not again get their nervous system to ratchet up again it must realize that it is facing a nervous system that is already been traumatized it must work as a system to say that we need to talk nicely to the patient we need to keep person centered care important we need to be aware that certain words or certain actions or certain imaging or technology that you do and the way you explain those scans are all going to potentially make them more anxious and trigger a system so how can we change our communication style how can we make our environments waiting rooms and all of that more pleasant more comfortable more uh, trauma reducing and more compassionate so that all of those elements can be put into place and you ultimately avoid retraumatizing when they come 
and want to get some healthcare in a professional context. Those are the parts I try to talk about and I sort of, at least in my own practice, my, my pain practice, what I do in the UK, my clinic, we both in the NHS and in the private that I am, we focus and I try to focus and ensure that my language is often neutral. My language is always very supportive. The way I set the table, the way I engage with the patient and eye contact, the way I order investigations and explain what it means to them in a, in a non-threatening manner. And then try to bring about hope in every consultation if possible, wherever possible, so that they feel that there is something that they can do to overwrite the nervous system and immune system and do the right thing. That's my sort of societal or uh, sort of system level way of trauma-informed care. And there is this direction that's happening. So I don't want to think and I don't want your listeners to think that this is all pipe dream stuff. Nobody behaves to me like that. And this doctor is only talking out of his hat. Because in the UK, we have this context called veterans aware. So many organizations are having to do a series of things to actually say that they are ready to look after veterans. So veterans in this context in the UK and in the US are those people who have done military service, but then who have had some PTSD or they have had some horrific injury in war and they are not able to serve anymore on the front line, but they are struggling with significant physical and mental health and big trauma related mental health and physical health issues. The organizations have to do a series of things to say they are accredited veterans aware organizations. And if you look at those principles of what they have to do to tick box and get an accreditation, it is essentially trauma-informed care in practice at a system level that is being done. And in the US, there are big health systems that are actually refashioning. So I think if I'm not wrong, Oregon, uh, Seattle, and there are some states which have entirely said that this should not just be about healthcare. It should be in the social system. It should be in the education system. It should be the justice system. And they have all become trauma informed because they and the prison system. They have all become very much aligned to the principles of trauma informed care because they realize that if their clients or customers or prisoners or convicts are not treated in a manner that is understanding of what they have gone through in their life they are not likely to change and feel supported enough to make sustainable change. Deepak, I was going to tell you that I wished you were my doctor. I wish you had been my son's doctor. And I, when you were talking about how we should be speaking and how it should be non-threatening and just, you know, sometimes that experience itself makes the diagnosis so much harder or so much better. And I think it's a world of difference. And even though we didn't talk consciously about sleep today, I just want to say that um, trauma of how safe we feel plays a huge role in how in our ability to fall asleep, stay asleep. As I said, that's when sometimes if I wake up with a start due to some reason, uh, it can tip me over and then I can't go back to sleep. It's a, it can be a big struggle. So I, I would, I know we're almost out of time. I'd love for you. At, I would like for you to share one practice with us to help us um, support our nervous system. Um, there is a lot of 
practice or rather there is a lot of interest now in realizing that what prevents us from falling asleep? What makes the trauma response a persistent response? Is this relative imbalance between the sympathetic system and the parasympathetic system? There is this misalignment and sort of malalignment between both these systems. And it is that overactivity or relative overactivity of the sympathetic nervous system that often keeps us in that permanent fight or flight mode. We are not sure where the danger will come from. So when the nervous and immune system do not know where the danger will come from, sleep then becomes a secondary issue. Because if you can, if if you don't feel safe, how can you get to relaxation? So there is a lot of understanding in saying, well, if you cannot calm the sympathetic nervous system straight away down, that those are techniques that are there to calm the system down. There is now increasing interest in actually saying, what can we do to stimulate the parasympathetic system and within that the vagus nerve stimulation is becoming quite useful so i find that actually two techniques which i probably will recommend to your listeners one is of course the principle of actually cold water so if you can find the time just when you're feeling that excessive uh, strain of the sympathetic system coming through is to just be able to splash cold water on your face that is one way of just bringing the whole system. The parasympathetic gets stimulated and that might calm down a little bit of what you're feeling. The second aspect is to say, ask yourself again, do I feel safe? But along with it, can you bring about any kind of gentle technique that activates the vagus nerve? So at the throat level, activating the vagus nerve. So breathing is a simple technique to do. But along with it, that is where our Indian practice of the OM or some kind of a low-pitched continuous frequency that you can say that allows you to just vibrate that chord, vocal chord area there, whether that's a gentle music or a humming or a OM noise, that I think is the other simple thing that people can do. So two simple things to activate the vagus nerve so that it can calm the trauma-inducing sympathetic response that bit. Thank you, Deepak. And I think that this episode has turned out to be one of my most favorite episodes I've ever recorded. I, it's just, I think, resonated with me personally. I love that you shared about the OM and I think Brahmari Pranayama is so similar to OM where you just hum and uh, even if somebody feels that there's a religious aspect in the OM, they can still probably hum. Um, any final words you'd like to leave us with today? Uh, I think given that our topic is around trauma-informed care, I invite your listeners, especially the healthcare professionals and definitely other members of the public, just to Google trauma-informed care. There's a lot of wonderful resources in the US which takes this there. I think it's a necessary element that healthcare systems itself should look at it. India is no exception, I think, and, and I think parts of US are already ahead of everything. But that is where I'd want to leave your listeners there. Otherwise, uh, thank you for having me and uh, I wish you also the very best in your own journey. And I think the way you are going about doing this in a very constructive, fulfilling manner through the podcast, through finding ways to help yourself and your clients 
through this is really lovely. I think that's another life-affirming way of calming your system down and making it much bigger. I think that is the important aspect. Thank you, Deepak. And for everyone listening today, please do follow Dr. Deepak Ravindran on Instagram, Facebook, and there's great videos that he posts. Uh, please grab a copy of his book if you haven't already. Thank you, Deepak, once again for being here today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me and for all your listeners. Please log into my YouTube channel for more videos and some subscribing will always be good. Thank you. Cheers then. We need more doctors like Dr. Deepak Ravindran so we can change the world of healthcare by addressing this big reason for systemic imbalance which is trauma. If you have experienced big or little trauma, it is of such importance that there are daily practices to soothe the nervous system. In my book, How to Sleep Better, The Miraculous 10-Step Protocol to Recharge Your Mind and Body, available now by HarperCollins, I go into many of these practices. I also have guided practices within my Blissful Sleep course as well, which you can get at www.ohahealth.com. Have a great day. This podcast is intended to provide helpful and informative material on the subject matter covered in the episodes. The podcast is not acting in the capacity of a doctor or a registered dietitian and is not rendering any professional healthcare or medical service. The information in the podcast is not intended as a substitute for medical advice or services or as treatment or cure for any particular health condition. The advice and tools contained herein may not be suitable for your situation. Any medical questions regarding contraindications and cautions or any questions of whether or not to proceed with any practices provided in the show should be referred to qualified health professionals before adopting the same. The podcast specifically disclaims any responsibility for any liability, loss, risk, personal or otherwise which may be incurred as a direct or indirect consequence of the use of information from this podcast or the application adoption of any of the information provided.